The following sermon is from Grace Church East County. More information about Grace Church is available at gracechurcheast.org. This morning we are continuing our series titled Refocus that Tab began last week. As he mentioned, our goal in this series is that we as a church after the last couple years would, would refocus, that we would refocus on where we are and where we're going. Last week, Tab highlighted our gospel center, and this morning we're going to refocus on our gospel-centered unity. Uh, please join me in prayer, and then Mindy is going to, le- going to read our passage for us. Oh, Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much that you are a God who delights in speaking to your people. You delight in revealing yourself to us. And this morning we ask that you would speak again through what you have already spoken in your inspired word. Oh, Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear what you desire for us in this passage. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The word of the Lord. Well, in his book, Divided We Fall, political commentator David French writes, at this moment in history, there's not a single important cultural, religious, or political force that's pulling Americans together more than it's pushing them apart. That there's no important cultural, religious, or political force that's pulling Americans together more than it's pushing them apart. Having lived through 2020, I don't think that any of us would be cynically checking his footnotes to see if he has his facts straight. I think all of us know, know deep in our bones that here in America, the, div- the divisions are deep right now. And while David French is highlighting the divisions in America, I wonder if the same could be said of the church right now. I wonder if it could be said that there is not a single important cultural, religious, or political force that's pulling followers of Jesus together more then it's pushing us apart. Just think about the debates, the debates and the division in the church over COVID, 
over masking, over vaccines, over critical race theory, over social justice, over the right way to respond to the Dobbs decision. And all of this is nothing to say about the deep divide over what and how we should think about President, former, uh, President, former President Trump. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. None of this is touching on the go-to topics for Christians to divide over. Just think about education choices for our kids. Styles of music on Sundays, secondary issues like the end times, days of creation, spiritual gifts or, women's in, or women in ministry. And of course, certainly I think for us here, the biggest issue of them all, whether or not beans should be in chili. I mean, you get the point, right? It seems like there is just no issue in the world around us or in the church that is pulling us together more than it is pushing us apart. And so what are we supposed to do? I mean, we have to do something, right? Because while David French is concerned about the, the future of America, as we're going to see in our passage, the stakes are a lot higher for the church. Because for us, nothing less than the power of the gospel and the witness of the church are at stake in our unity. Nothing less than the power of the gospel and the witness of the church are at stake in our unity. And so, and so what are we supposed to do? Well, thankfully, we are not left to ourselves because speaking through the Apostle Paul, God has a word for us this morning. In our passage, we are going to see God's answer to two questions. First, he's going to show us what we are supposed to do. And second, very importantly, he's going to show us how we do it. So the what and the how, that's going to be our outline for this morning. So first, what are we supposed to do? In the face of all that threatens to divide us, what are we supposed to do? Well, in our passage this morning, we see that God calls us to pursue a gospel-centered unity. He calls us here to pursue a gospel-centered unity. And when I say gospel here, I'm referring to the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Look with me at verse 10. The apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. This word appeal here, it means to, to strongly urge. It means to, to exhort. For Paul here, this is an intense word that he chooses on purpose to show that the unity of the church is something that he is incredibly passionate about. He wants us to, to hear the passion in his words as he begins this appeal. But before he dives into the specifics, did you notice how he begins? I think it's very important for us to see that before he begins his appeal, he highlights his affection for the Corinthians. He begins this, this, with a, he begins this appeal by reminding them of his love and his care for them. In fact, in this letter of 1 Corinthians, this letter that is filled with correction from chapter 1 on through chapter 16, he calls them brothers and sisters almost 40 times, far and away more than in any other book of the Apostle Paul's. 
Now, I don't want to dwell on this, but I, but I do think that Paul's example here is instructive for us as we consider our approach to correction. As you think about those that God might be calling you to correct, whether in a friendship, at home, in the workplace, or even here in the church, do they know your love and care? Are they convinced that you are for them and that you desire their good? I think as Paul shows us here in verse 10, this is, this is important for us. Paul wanted the Corinthians to be absolutely convinced of his affection for them so that they might willingly receive his correction. But we don't just see Paul's affection. We also see the authority behind his appeal because here Paul urges them in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? All that Paul is about to say isn't just based on his opinion. He's not standing on a soapbox. He's not addressing a pet peeve of his. This appeal here comes in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. All that Paul is going to say here is Paul shares his heart for the Corinthians. He's simply sharing God's heart for the Corinthians. He's appealing to them in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is this affectionate and authoritative appeal. In verse 10, he writes, I appeal to you that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. Here he calls them to pursue unity. And this appeal, and this appeal here has a, a positive and a negative element to it. Positively, he writes that they are to all agree. To agree, it means to, to speak the same thing. This was a, a common phrase used at the time to, to call people to unity. He's calling them to, to speak the same thing. I think the last phrase of verse 10 unpacks what they're to agree upon, what they're to, to say the same thing about. He says that they are to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This word judgment here, it could be translated purpose. And I think that this captures exactly what the Apostle Paul is getting at here. He wants them to be united around and to pursue the same gospel-centered purpose. He wants them to speak the same thing when it comes to their gospel-centered unity in the church. Here you can get the imagery of Paul wanting the Corinthians to be like rowers in a boat. He wants them all facing the same direction, pulling on the oars in the same way at the same time that they might effectively accomplish their gospel-centered purpose that God has given to them. Now, as we hear this all agreeing, as we hear Paul calling them to, to have the same mind and the same judgment, to speak the same thing, don't think that Paul is calling the church to uniformity. That's not what he's doing here. He's not telling the church, he's not telling us today that we need to agree on everything, that we need to dress the same, eat the same food, listen to the same type of music. He's not calling the Corinthians, he's not calling us to be clones. No, what he's getting at here is just the idea of diversity within unity. We're all different, God has made us all different, and we're gonna make different choices, but in the midst of our diversity, Paul's calling us to maintain here our gospel-centered unity. We're to have the same mind and the same purpose together. It's going to look different, but he wants that 
to be the overriding concern for us, to be the main thing about us is that we speak the same thing when it comes to the most important thing, and that is the gospel. That's what he's saying positively, to, to agree with one another. And negatively here, he urges us, he urges that there be no divisions among us. You see that there in verse 10? This word division here is where we get the word schism or the word faction. Here, he's calling the Corinthians to not separate from each other, to, to not divide from one another, but to be united. And as we keep reading in verses 11 and 12, we see the reason behind this call to pursue gospel-centered unity. You see, in verse 11, we read, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. Behind his appeal is the appalling news that Paul has received from Chloe's people. Now, we don't really know anything about Chloe at all. In fact, this is the only time that her name is mentioned in the whole New Testament. But, whatever, but whoever she is, it seems clear that she's known by both Paul and the Corinthians. And as Paul mentions here, she's written to him, letting him know that something bad is going on, that there is quarreling in Corinth. Verse 12 shows us what this, what this quarreling was about. He writes, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. In Corinth, the Christians here are quarreling. They're, they're fighting. They're dividing in the church, rallying around and claiming to follow these different leaders. You have some people claiming to be on team Paul. You know, Paul was someone well known by the Corinthians. He founded the church. He stayed there with them for 18 months, teaching and preaching the gospel. Others in Corinth were claiming to be on team Apollos. It seems that after Paul had left, Apollos came in and he continued the gospel work that Paul began as he preached the gospel, as he baptized many. And so some were rallying around Apollos. Still others, it seems, were, were claiming to be on team Cephas. That's Peter. We don't know if Peter ever visited Corinth personally, but as you, we know from the book of Acts, Peter was one of the main leaders of the early church. He's someone that would have been known by everyone, and so you have some claiming to be on team Peter. And it seems here that uh, there were even some in the church who, were, who thought they were, were super spiritual. And for them, they weren't claiming to associate with any of the lead human leaders that had been there. For them, in their super spirituality, they were claiming to be on team Christ. They didn't need any human leaders. They didn't need any human leaders in the church here. They weren't going to associate or identify with them. For them, in their super spiritual way, they were going to identify with Christ. And here they were doing so in such a way not to, to bring unity, but to separate and to distinguish themselves from the others in the church who were following mere human leaders. So you had those here in Corinth who are, who are identifying with human leaders and who are separating from those who didn't follow their preferred leader. Now, as we look at Paul, as we look at Apollos, we are, are not exactly sure what separated them from one another. 
It's possible for those in Corinth that it was, it was their preaching style. Their, in Corinth, oratory skills were, were prized in that culture. So it's, it's possible that those in Corinth were merely acting just like those outside the church, those in the culture, and claiming to rally and support around those who, who spoke really well and those who were really eloquent. It's possible that it was their preaching style, or it could have perhaps been some form of of spiritual attachment that they had to these leaders. I mean, it could be easy to picture those who were saved under Paul's preaching holding holding an allegiance to Paul. I, I follow Paul. Or maybe those who were baptized by Apollos claiming allegiance to him. Well, whatever it was, they were allowing their associations with these human leaders they were to separate and to divide them from each other in the, ch- in the church here. The problem in Corinth was that they were over-identifying with these human leaders. They were looking at their relationship to these human leaders, and they were saying that that relationship, that relationship to Paul or Apollos or Peter, that relationship was more important to them than their relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, in Corinth, being a follower of Paul or Apollos, it had become more central to how they thought of themselves than being a disciple of Jesus. And this was destroying the church. Because the reality is, as long as as they were identifying with anything other than Jesus, the result is always going to be division and disunity. You see, whenever we prioritize anything other than Jesus and the gospel, division is sure to follow. And that's why here in these words, God is calling them and he's calling us to pursue a gospel-centered unity because in the church, that is the only type of unity there is. It is either a, a unity centered on Jesus and the gospel or eventually the whole thing falls apart. In just a moment, we're going to see how we pursue this gospel-centered unity. But before we do that, I just want us to consider how how might we be tempted to disunity? What are the disputes and the rivalries that take place here at Grace Church that threaten to divide and to separate us? No, I don't think, or at least I hope, that there aren't people separating in the church or dividing over the elders in the church. I haven't heard of any team marshals or team Dan's. Haven't heard anyone saying, I follow Rick, I follow Steve, or I follow Tab here in our church, and thanks be to God for that. But that doesn't mean that we're immune to divisions. And I think um, just like in the world, I think one topic that, con- that constantly threatens the unity of the church today is politics. <laughs> Unfortunately, political polarization doesn't stop at the front door of the church. And it can be so easy for us to be just like the Corinthians as we think about the issue of, of politics and to say or to claim, I follow Trump or I follow Biden Perhaps you follow Bernie or you follow Cheney. 
to identify with them or to identify with any other politician in a way that becomes more important than our identification with Trump, within our identification with Jesus. If we do that, if we find or locate our identity and our associations with any political figure, it will only lead to division and to separation. When we do this, we're going to begin to look down on others. We're going to unfriend those or hide those who don't support our preferred candidate. Or we're just going to separate, those who separate from those who disagree with us altogether. Perhaps a little closer to home, the divisions aren't around politicians themselves. But we can begin to identify with those who share our view on how Christians should approach politics. So we can easily follow around and rally around, I follow John MacArthur or Al Mohler or Vody Bauckham, or others saying, I follow Tim Keller, I follow Russ Moore, or I follow David French. And our identification with one of these leaders can become more important to us than our identification with Jesus. And when we do this, we begin to think more highly of ourselves for following this person and we can very easily begin to look down on others who don't follow them or who even dare to disagree with them. And again, this here is just the tip of the iceberg in the church. We can do the same thing over education choices for our children, over views on secondary matters like women in ministry and the gifts. The list could go on and on, but the temptation is always here for us. We always face the live temptation to over-identify with a person or to over-identify with a position where we allow that reality to be more important to who we think we are, to who we identify than our identity and our association with Jesus. And whenever we do this, division and disunity are sure to follow. I think one easy way for us to do this is what topics do you start thinking about us versus them categories in? What are the topics where you begin to, to think of people in groups, whether it's in the church or outside of the church? Any times that we begin to think about us versus them, as we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ, there is simply no hope for gospel unity. Us versus them will tear the unity of the church apart. It's what they were doing in Corinth, and it's what our hearts are so easily tempted to do. And here, Paul calls us, God calls us to pursue a gospel-centered unity. Now, before we, before we look at how we do that, I just want to clarify here. Please don't hear me saying it is wrong to have opinions or positions. Don't hear me saying it's wrong to follow certain political candidates. That is not wrong at all. It's not wrong to have those opinions, and it's not wrong to seek to persuade others in love. But what I'm concerned about and what God is concerned about is whether we are allowing our identification with other people or positions to become more important to us than our shared unity in Jesus. That's the live temptation for us here today. And so that's why God begins by calling us as a church to pursue gospel-centered unity. Now, as Paul goes on, he shows us how. We see that not only does he call us to pursue unity, he shows us how we pursue this gospel-centered unity. 
He shows us how we can become the type of people who desire this unity. So how do we do it? I think simply put, Paul's answer is that we should prize the centrality of the gospel. We pursue gospel-centered unity by prizing the centrality of the gospel, by, tre- by treasuring the centrality of the gospel. As we'll see here in verses 13 to, 13 to 17, Paul doesn't give us a checklist of things to do. Instead, what he does is he directs our eyes to Jesus and to the glories of Christ and him crucified because he knows that the antidote to our divisions is more Jesus. The antidote to our divisions is to be so captivated by Jesus and the gospel that the thought of identifying with anyone or anything more than him just seems silly. It just feels like like a loss to identify with any political figure or any position. It's simply a loss compared to identifying with Jesus and the gospel. Look with me at verse 13. Here Paul asks, three questions meant to exalt Christ and to expose the Corinthians and our foolishness when we seek to divide from others. First, Paul asks, is Christ divided? Essentially here, Paul's asking, has Jesus been divvied up? Is Jesus being parceled out? Does each group in Corinth get a a little piece of Jesus? Is Is there a little piece for the Paul people? Is there a little piece of Jesus for the followers of Paulos, for the followers of Peter and so on? No, Jesus hasn't been divided. What Paul wants them to see is that Jesus is one. And because Jesus is one, then we, the church, the body of Christ, must be one. Because Jesus is not divided, we must not be divided. Paul starts by directing our eyes to the oneness of Christ, to the unity of Christ, that we, we as the body of Christ might be united in him. Second, Paul asks, was Paul crucified for you? Here he, he really turns the heat up, wanting them to feel the weight of what they were really saying when they were identifying with these human leaders. As they called out, I follow Paul, they were in effect claiming Paul as their savior. And so he asks, was I crucified for you? And the, the correct answer is, of course not. Of course I wasn't crucified for you. Jesus is the one who was crucified for you, and therefore he is the only person that you should be following. He is the only one that you should be claiming loyalty to, and the same is true for us. You see, in those moments where we are tempted to over-identify with human leaders, in those moments where we are tempted to make our identification with any one person more important than our identification with Jesus, what we are doing is we are in effect saying that that reality is more important than the fact of Jesus Christ and him crucified for us. We must not allow our identification with any human person to become more important to how we think about ourselves than Jesus. Because Jesus, he is the one who was crucified and raised for our salvation, and he is always already the most important thing about us individually and the most important thing about us corporately as a church. We are those in Christ. 
And so are you wanting to be the type of person who pursues this gospel-centered unity with others? Well, here I think then that Paul is calling us to meditate on Christ, to meditate on Christ and him crucified, the one, the one who died on the cross to reconcile us to himself forever. And as we do this, as we begin to meditate on Christ and him crucified, I think you'll find yourself more and more prizing the centrality of the gospel in your life, allowing this identification with Jesus to be more important to you, to be the most important thing about you than anything in the world. And I think the amazing reality is as we begin to focus and reflect on Jesus Christ and him crucified, it changes how we view others. Because as we prize the centrality of the gospel in our own lives, we'll realize that the most important thing about our brothers and sisters here in Grace Church is that Christ has been crucified for them as well. We don't claim allegiance to other leaders because Christ was crucified for us and he was crucified for our brothers and sisters, those around us. And so our unity must be in him and him alone. Christ was crucified to unite us to himself we should also be united to one another. Now, before we look at the third question Paul asks here, I just want to briefly speak to those here who don't consider themselves to be Christians this morning. Those who are here who are just questioning Christianity, maybe you're here because someone dragged you here this morning. First of all, I just want to thank you for being here. But as we consider Jesus Christ and him crucified, I think that that is a wonderful picture here of the most important unity for any of us in the world. And that is the unity between us and Christ. Being united to Christ is the most important thing, the most important form of unity there is. And this unity with him is only possible through trusting in the death and resurrection of Christ. So if you desire unity, if you desire peace, look to Christ, the one who was crucified for you for the forgiveness of your sins, that you might be united to him and that you might also be united to this church family. Well, as we see Paul's questions, he's asked, is Christ divided? He's asked, is, has, was Paul crucified for you? And he's not done yet because lastly he asks, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Here it seems that Paul is picking up on the idea that some in Corinth were dividing over loyalties to the person who baptized them. This is probably why in verses 15 and 16, Paul talks about how happy he was that he only baptized a few people in Corinth because Paul himself, he didn't want to be a pawn in their rivalry games. And so here he shows them how ridiculous what they were doing is because to, to claim to follow Paul or Apollo simply because they baptized you goes against the very nature of baptism itself because as we know, no one in Corinth, the same way that no one in Grace Church here was baptized in the name of Paul or Apollos or Peter or baptized in the name of anyone administering the baptism. No, as we are baptized, we are baptized into the name of Jesus. So for them to identify with the person baptizing them was just to contradict the very meaning of their baptism, where they, were, where they, were, where they identified with Jesus. 
And so here, lastly, he reminds them that they have been baptized in the name of Jesus, that individually and as a church, that they would be, that they have been united to Jesus through the Spirit. And because of this, they are united to him and they should pursue unity with one another. Think in these three questions here. Paul is trying to get us to see. He's trying to get the Corinthians to see something that the, the writers of the Pixar movies understand so well. You see, a lot, in a lot of the Pixar movies, the, the writers have a habit of, of throwing together two characters who rub each other the wrong way. You have uh, the technologically up-to-date Buzz Lightyear exposing the insecurities of Woody in the story in Toy Story. In Up, a great movie, you have the young Boy Scout Russell who just annoys the elderly Carl so much that when Carl begs, please let me in, as their house is floating thousands of feet in the air, Carl yells no and slams the door on him. But by the end of the movies here, Woody and Buzz are sitting side by side on Andy's bed on Christmas morning. The end of Up, we see Carl and Russell sitting side by side on the road, enjoying a couple ice cream cones. Well, what was it that brought about their unity? Well, for them, the answer was a, was a shared commitment. It was a, it was a shared commitment for, for the toys, for Woody and for Buzz. It was getting back to their owner. It was getting back to Andy. For Carl for, and Russell, it was leading the mother of a nearly extinct species of animals back to her hungry babies. This, this shared commitment brought them together, and the same is true here for us in the church. A shared commitment to prizing the gospel is meant to have the same effect on each of us, bringing us together, bringing together a ragtag group of people who really have nothing, have, don't have that many other things in common. He's, he's showing us here that the centrality of the gospel is what can unify us, what can bring us together. See, when we all prize the centrality of the gospel, we learn to set aside our, distance, our differences, to stop looking at each other in an us versus them paradigm. And we discover that not, and as we do this, as we prize the gospel, we'll discover that not only can we be in the same church, political differences aside, but we can love each other as family, as those that Christ died to save and to bring to himself. In verse 17 here, Paul brings his argument to a close. And it's here that we're reminded again of the importance of our unity. Verse 17 here, Paul writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, Paul's not downplaying the importance of baptism here, but he's highlighting his calling as an apostle. Here, he's been called by Jesus to primarily preach the gospel. And here we see his main concern for the Corinthians when he writes, lest the cross of Christ, the shorthand for the gospel, for the work that Jesus did, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You see, Paul knew that the division in the church that over-identification with human leaders would only lead 
to emptying the cross of its power as we minimize its importance and centrality in our lives and in our church, as we elevate other things higher than our unity in Christ and him crucified. See, this is how important our unity in Christ is, is that when we are disunified here, Paul is showing us that it empties the cross of its power. I mean, this is why Jesus prays for our unity. So many things Jesus could have prayed for, but in John 17, before he goes to the cross, he prays for our unity, that the church would be one, just as Jesus and God the Father are one. Unity is so important. I mean, think about all of the issues that Paul is going to bring up in the rest of this letter. There are some heavy things that he is going to bring up. There are some major challenges and bad things going on in Corinth. But where does Paul begin? Paul begins by highlighting the importance of our unity with one another because for him, that is the most important thing, the most central thing about, our, about the, the cross of Christ and about our witness in the world is that we be one, we be united to one another for the sake of our witness and for the power of the gospel itself. Our, our, our unity here displays the power of the gospel as it brings together all kinds of different people and it makes us a community here, one that has nothing else in common other than Jesus. That's why he's calling us here. That's why we must prize the centrality of the gospel because it is the only thing that will cause us to pursue this gospel-centered unity. Well, as we close, I want to pray for us and then we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But before I pray, I just want to invite the, the band to come up, the ushers to prepare there. But before we pray, I just want to invite you. I want to, to invite you to consider where you might be tempted to, to separate or, or to divide from your brothers and sisters here in Christ. Perhaps it's something political in nature. Perhaps there's something else going on. What, what is it that might tempt you to division with your brothers and sisters here. I just want to invite you to, to take a moment to confess that to the Lord and to ask the Spirit to do what Paul's called us to, and that is to prize the centrality of the gospel, that we might pursue unity with one another. Well, Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you for, for the unity that you died to purchase the unity that, ha that we have, that we can have here in the church because we have been united to Jesus Christ. Oh, Holy Spirit, I do pray that you would give us the, the faith to believe the words that we've heard this morning in your word. And Lord, give us the grace that you know we need to live in the good of it, to live in the good of our gospel-centered unity with one another. Oh, Holy Spirit, please have mercy on us. Grace Church. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church East County. Please find us online at gracechurcheast.org if you would like to find out more about us.